Do you want to be right or do you want to be successful? Do you want to be right or do you want to be effective? I think I've heard this question in a variety of ways over the years, and it has always resonated with me as a leader. Since I was a little boy, I loved to argue. I have had strong opinions all my life and a strong conviction in what I believe to be right. And in many ways, this has served me well. It has led to a lot of success in life. But in many ways, it has not served me well. And I've spent quite a bit of time reflecting on this question, you know, do you want to be right or do you want to be successful? I've reflected on that a lot over the last few months in relation to my own journey and development, as well as the coaches that I support. So hang with me for a second while I lay this out for you. So often as leaders, we believe a growth mindset is about learning better ways of doing things, right? If I asked a coach, how are you working on your coaching when you aren't coaching? They typically say, well, I read books, I listen to podcasts, I watch videos, I attend clinics. I'm always trying to learn new things, better ways of doing things. And those things are valuable. But one of the challenges is that when we go back to our team, to our coaching staff, when we go back into the world armed with this new knowledge and these new ways of doing things, other people aren't. And so here we come in and we have strong new opinions and even convictions on what is the right strategy for the year, what is the right way to run our culture, the right way to build a program, the right way to discipline, or even the optimal way to to train the off-season. And even though we may be right, others don't see it that way. And then what do we do? Well, if you're like young JP, you try to impose your will, the way that you want to do things, the vision you have for the team. Um, You try to impose that on your athletes, on the parents, and on your staff. And while... You may be right about whatever it is, how things should be done. You will not be effective or successful for long with that approach. And so what we really need to be focusing on as a leader, where we really need to be learning and growing more often than we realize, is our mindsets. Great leaders don't just know a lot. They aren't just highly skilled communicators, motivators, and storytellers. Great leaders are able to step back, right? They're able to take different perspectives. Maybe they're even able to step up so they can take a wider view of the situation, of the context. And they're able to understand and hold other people's experiences, their perspectives, and their values, what's important to them, while also holding on to their own perspective and their own values. And they're able to work and mesh their own ideas with others without sacrificing their core principles. In today's conversation, Nate and I are going to attempt to lay out what that looks like for us as coaches when it comes to things like off-season training, dress code, discipline, working with parents, recruiting, NIL deals, the transfer portals, our team strategy, even how our team warms up in a game. All with the aim for whatever it is that we're working on, for us to be more effective and successful as leaders, not just for us to be right. Welcome to the Coaching Culture Podcast. I'm your host, J.P. Nurbin, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host, Nate Sanderson. The mission of this podcast is to help you become a better leader and build a better culture. In addition to this podcast, I'm the founder of TOC, which provides one-on-one coaching and consulting for leaders. Learn more about us at tocculture.com. This episode is brought to you by the TOC Newsletter. Every Thursday, our newsletter includes two things you don't want to miss out on. Firstly, the notes to that week's podcast episode. Whether you're listening while driving the car, out for a run, or doing the dishes, we don't want you to miss 
the biggest takeaways from each episode. Secondly, each newsletter is a short article from myself or Nate on leadership and culture. These articles are designed to inspire, encourage, and provide practical insights into leadership and culture building. Our content is a perfect fit for anyone who wants to stay up to date with the latest trends and insights in culture building. You can subscribe to the newsletter at tocculture.com or by clicking on the link in the details of each episode. Well, JP, we are recording this in the middle of July, which for a lot of coaches in just about every sport is the off season in some way or another. And this can be a particularly dangerous time of year, I think. I'm appreciating that more and more as I get older, in the sense that so many coaches are looking for solutions to the problems that they had last season. They're out on Coach Twitter. We get emails constantly, coaches that are looking for the right team building activity, or they're looking for how do you run your zone, or they're looking for different strategies and systems that are going to make their teams even better next year. And I think this becomes dangerous because all of our focus, I'd say 90% of that attention is being placed on an ideal. It's being placed on, I'm trying to imagine what could be. I'm looking out into the future of, man, I wish my players were more committed, more connected. They worked harder. They showed up for more workouts, whatever it might be. And sometimes when our feet sort of leave the ground and we start thinking just in this imaginary place, we can become disconnected from maybe the place where our learning is going to have the most impact. Another way of saying this, JP, is I think 80 to 90% of the time we think about what could be. And I would argue that maybe we should be spending 80 to 90% of our time better understanding where we are rather than creating some sort of an imagined place that we could be. And if you're wondering, are you talking to me, Nate? Is this something that I should be concerned about? I would give you one word to look for in the way that you think and the conversations that you're having right now about your team as you're getting ready for next year. How often are you using the word should? The more we say, my athletes should be coming in, they should know this, they should be able to do that, that is an indicator that our thinking is rooted in some imaginary place where our players are not yet. And I would argue, JP, that we've gotten far more out of asking questions about where we are, what our players are capable of, what can they give us from whatever their context is right now in the offseason or as we get ready to start planning for next season. We're trying to better understand our current context and work from there rather than create some imagined reality and try to pull our team to, to this imaginary place. Yeah, Nate, what you just shared there has probably been the downfall of my leadership so often, probably more than anything else. Um, when I look back at my coaching career, I remember, you know, having spent years in in Europe, you know, in, in Ireland and Lithuania, and I was learning from some of the best minds in European basketball. And in 2012, I, I moved to Tennessee, and I had this great vision of the way my team was going to play, the culture that we're going to create, and you know, I really spent a lot of time and had this grand vision, um, like you said, there, almost this imaginary place. And I, as soon as I got there, everything was about, you know, constantly, well, players should be doing this, right? The, the locker rooms, the state of the facilities, they should be much better than this. It's just, I was constantly operating in this place of where I thought things should be and really spent 0% of my time actually 
recognizing and finding out where were we? Where were we as a program? Where were our, the character of our players? Where was the state of the culture? Where was the state of, of the school's athletic culture? You know, how invested were our parents? You know, just really trying to survey the landscape and really trying to understand where things were so that I could actually be effective in helping to drive the changes necessary to move us to the promised land, to, to be able to effectively lead us to that vision of what I had for this program. And I think what, what we're talking about here is not necessarily an abandoning of our principles or abandoning of our vision. It's just recognizing that there's a process and there's a journey in that. And that for us to be effective, we have to be a little bit more flexible in our thinking if we want to be successful. Well, let me give you a concrete example here, JP, of something that we're kind of dealing with right now as we finish up the first phase of our summer workouts. Truth be told, this is my third offseason here at Mount Vernon, and our players have not been coming in to open gym or coming to our scrimmages nearly as consistently as they did last summer for sure. And even in my first summer, I think we had a little bit better participation than what we've had this year. Now, it would be easy to get hung up on the shoulds and just rant and rave and be frustrated and try to guilt players into coming in because, look, if you want to be better this year, you got to play basketball. You want to compete for a starting job, you need to come in and get better as a player. We've all given these speeches before. And where I think coaches sometimes go wrong, and I'm describing myself here, is we look at the problem and we say, players have to come in in the summer, and then our players don't come in. And so we start asking other coaches Hey, JP, what are you doing to get your guys in the gym in the summer? Do you make it mandatory? Do you keep track? Do you do a reward system? Do you have you know, teams? Do you incentivize it in some way to get more participation? And we're constantly looking for someone else's solution that works in their context to see if we can maybe take something away from that and apply it to our own. And there's nothing wrong with that. I've stolen plenty of strategies over the years that have worked with our teams. Here's where my thinking has gone a bit astray, JP, as I've reflected on this this summer. Let me tell you what makes me feel good. I love talking to other coaches that are also pissed off that their players aren't coming in. (laughs) That makes me feel better about my situation. It doesn't help me solve the problem. When I talk to coaches who are having great participation, that just makes me angrier. That does not help me solve the problem. What I need to understand, and right now I'm going to be quite honest, I don't is I don't know how important basketball is to each individual player in our program. And what I mean by that, that sounds like some sort of a backhanded, you know, a passive aggressive shot at our players that basketball is obviously not important to you. I think sometimes we make that leap. But quite honestly, I don't know what's reasonable for me to expect for each individual player. Some of our players are softball. And in Iowa, we have summer softball. And they're starting in softball for the first time in their career. And that's a big deal to them. They don't want to get hurt. They don't want to be tired. The softball schedule is demanding and they're having great success. It's probably foolish for me, number one, to expect them to come in as much as they did the previous year. And it's also maybe a little bit foolish to say just because they want to have a great run in softball and they're enjoying the season, that that also means basketball is not important to them. I don't think that's true. But I don't know for sure because I haven't had those conversations. In other words, what I'm trying to say here is that I've focused my thinking in places that haven't helped us understand our context better. What I should have been doing is having individual conversations with our players to better, to get a better sense of where they're at, 
what they what they want to invest in basketball between now and the start of the season and figure out how to work from there, understanding that maybe the template we used last year isn't going to work this year because our players are in a different place. They're thinking about basketball differently than they did a year ago. And I don't fully understand that from each individual player's perspective. In other words, JP, I would bet if you surveyed our 10 returning players this year, they would all say that basketball is still important to them. We have high goals for next season. We'd like to get to the state tournament. We got players that want to have great individual years. But their context in the summer of all the other demands on their time and their energy just don't make it as possible for them to be able to invest time right now in chasing those goals. And so I've had to change the way I think about the summer. Yeah, what you're sharing there, Nate, is really, really powerful. And honestly, it's the one of the highest, if not the highest level of leadership. So often we think we can take what worked last year and apply it to next year. And oftentimes, and in my case, I thought I could take what I had been so successful with coaching in Ireland, and I could bring it and apply some evolved, modified version of it and just plug and play it and it would work at the next place. And that's not necessarily true. Okay. Um, the reality is so often our expectations, right, which is the generation of all those shoulds, those expectations come from, from our vision for the program. They come from our values that we hold as a coach. And they come from our experiences, right? Our experiences playing the game, our experiences in previous teams, right? All those experiences, vision and values, they dictate our expectations. And then we come into that program and when players aren't meeting our expectations, it almost feels like it's an attack upon us, our very identity and what we value and what we believe is important in the game and how things should be. And so this is really, really difficult for us as coaches. And so where we have to really evolve as a leader is to not necessarily throw away what's important to us, what we value or completely disregard our vision. It's our ability to hold those things that are important to us, hold on to those things while also accepting that other, our athletes, our assistant coaches, the parents, the people in the community, they have different vision. They have a different values. They have different experiences. And high-level leadership is able to hold on to what's important to us while also embracing, accepting, and working with those people. And then it's up to us over as a leader, I think over time, to continue to inspire those people, to you know, try to promote and, and to get them to buy into maybe this vision that we have that's a greater vision for our program. It's not to accept, hey, okay, well, I guess this is the way things are going to be at Mountain Vernon for you every year. And just you're just going to have to accept that this is the way it always is, right? It's about taking the time to get them and, and to kind of nurture that vision over time. But you have to first off understand what's important to them, what their experiences are, what they value, and what they're going through. Well, not only that, JP, but here's the other key that's really changed the way that I think about our quote unquote problem here this offseason. And this has largely challenged me from the book, It's Not About the Shark by David Nivens, which is an absolutely fantastic book when it comes to thinking about problems and solutions. The book opens with the story of Steven Spielberg directing his second movie, I think it was, when he was making Jaws back in the 1970s. And Long story short, essentially, they spent all this money on trying to build an electronic shark that was going to be scary and they could use a remote control and they could use it in all these different ways when they're filming the, the movie. And then 
they throw it in the water and the shark doesn't work. And so now they've sunk all this money. They're behind on schedule. They're over budget. Spielberg's career is on the line. Now, Spielberg's team was focused on just the shark itself. How do we make this machine work in order to be able to film the movie? And Spielberg, maybe in a bit of desperation, started to think a little bit differently. He started asking himself, well, what's the purpose of using this electronic shark? Well, we're using it to create a sense of fear in the audience, an anticipation of this monstrous beast that's coming after these innocent little children on the beach, right? And he realized we might be able to do that without using the electronic shark. And they found another way. Niven's point in the book is that this is a change in thinking. It's a change in mindset where rather than looking at the ultimate problem, the thing that's not working, you got to dig a little bit deeper as to what is the purpose of the thing that appears to be broken. Let's come back to my example with players not showing up in the offseason. For 21 years, JP, we've kept track of the number of hours that players come in and we've given the speech that offseason, you know, the hard work in the offseason translates to success during the season. How many times do we read on Twitter, a day will come when winter will ask, what were you doing all summer, right? We've all given these speeches before, assuming that this is the only way that we can get better. Here's how I've started thinking differently. Let's say, for example, that JP comes to me in the exit interview and says, coach, I want to compete for a starting position this year. And I tell you, JP, look, that's great. We love to have players aspiring for bigger roles. Here's what you need to be able to do in November. When you get to the rim, you need to be able to finish or you need to be able to make a decision that creates opportunities for your teammates without turning the ball over. That's your opportunity right there. Now, traditionally, I would say the way for you to get better at that, JP, is to come to open gym and play small-sided games with us in the context of our offense and play in our scrimmages so you get those reps. And that can work. But there may be other ways for JP to be able to enhance those skills before November 11th comes along. The off-season, my off-season workouts, may not be the only way. In other words... JP and I are both now focused on here's what you need to improve to be able to play more. The offseason might be one way to do that. If you don't come in, at least you now know this is what the standard is going to be for me to get on the court. And in some ways, then it becomes up to you, JP, to figure out how to get better at those things, which whether I like it or not, could happen outside of my workouts for you. This episode is brought to you by the Culture System Online Training Platform. It's the ultimate resource for coaches who want to become more transformational and build winning team cultures. Whether you're just starting out or looking to take your coaching to the next level, our one-of-a-kind online training platform is designed to help you learn the culture system framework at your own pace. Through this course, I'll share with you the proven methods, tools, and strategies used by some of the best teams and organizations in the world. You'll get access to customizable digital tools and a group chat to engage with experienced coaches and apply the four-part framework throughout your season. With the Culture System Online Training, you'll be inspired and transformed through the stories and lessons of real leaders who've successfully applied these methods and tools within their organizations. You'll gain a deeper commitment to transformational coaching and be equipped with the tools and strategies you need to build a great team culture. To get access to this course today, simply go to tocculture.com and click on the Online Course tab or click on the link provided in the details of this episode. Don't miss this opportunity to become a more transformational coach and take your team to the next level with 
the Culture System online training platform. Yeah, Nate, I, I just love the way that you've approached the offseason. I think that's just such a healthy perspective on how you've kind of to shift your mindset and how you see the problem. And I think this applies to so many other areas within our leadership. Probably one of the biggest ones for me was around parents. You know, I used to kind of have that philosophy or that mindset of like, hey, I am coaching, right? The players, I, I shouldn't have to deal with the parents. The parents shouldn't be bothering me. They should just trust what I'm doing, right? And they should stay in their lane. Yet that is not the current state of sports at the youth level, at the high school level, or now even at the collegiate level, right? This, their current reality is parents have invested time and money and they have options and they are involved. And I can continue to try to fix the broken mechanical shark, or I could say, hmm, if I rethink this, how can I actually, parents be an ally for me in what we're trying to create? How can I start to partner with them and work with them? And that mindset shift for me, right, and the coaches I work with has been an absolute game changer, right? And it's alleviated so many other problems that come up. And I remember the, like the moment this actually, that it shifted for me. It was, it was years ago um, where I had read this article called the Maffini Manifesto. And essentially this um, veteran baseball player goes out, you know, played professional baseball. He starts coaching his kid's youth team. And he has this document that he hands to all the parents. Essentially, this is your job. This is my job. Stay in your lane, right? And there's so many things in there that I read that was so inspiring and so convicting. I was like, he's right, right? This is exactly, you know, what needs to happen within the the parent to the coach dynamic. And if I was honest, right, it's not a much about much of a partnership. Anyways, I wrote up, I spent all night writing up JP's manifesto for parents. And I handed it to my mentor coach, Jamie Gilbert. You know, I sent it to him the next day and said, well, what do you think of this? And he just said, JP, what do you think the effect of this is going to be on the parents? And that hit me like a ton of bricks. And that was that moment where I started to see, wow, if I continue just to see parents as the problem, as the broken mechanical shark moving forward in coaching, I'm just inviting more problems, more resistance, and more of me saying parents should be doing this. They shouldn't be doing that and living in that world. Well, you've touched on something here, JP, with parents that, quite honestly, you could write a whole book about how coaches should be able to uh, engage with parents better. And I know I've thought a little bit differently about that somewhat reluctantly over the last few years. But again, when you ask what's the purpose, even of the Matheny Manifesto or the JP Manifesto of putting parents in their lane, at the end of the day, if we still ask the question, well, what do you want from parents? I want them to be positive. I want them to be supportive. I want them to be responsible to get their kids where they need to be. And I would argue, I don't want them to be an obstacle to our success. Well, I don't know that those have changed from 20 years ago to today in terms of what's the the positive role of the parent. What's different is in order to get them to that place, you have to lead them differently. You have to engage with them. You have to invite them into the program. You have to allow them to participate in the experience. It isn't just so much a a stern talking to you do this as a parent. I do this as a coach. Players do this. No, when they're on the court, it's a collaboration with the same end goal. We want you to be supportive. We want you to be positive. We want you to enjoy the experience just as much as we want for our players, but we have to go about that in a different way. And I think so often it's another example of where it's hard sometimes to have that flexibility of thinking to get below, you know, the problem 
and start thinking about what do we really want and how do we bring that about? Yeah. And another area where I see a lot of coaches caught up in this idealistic world or vision for how they think things should be and what's the right way to go about it is at the collegiate level with the NLI money and the transfer portal. You know, there, there's so much criticism about how this is going to ruin the game, right? And we shouldn't have to deal with this or, you know, players should not be getting paid, right? There's all this talk by so many of the coaches. Well, who are the successful coaches? Who are the ones that are going to be successful from this? It's the ones that have embraced this. They've had a slight change in their mindset. They haven't abandoned their principles, right? One of the reasons that Dusty May could take his team, right? FAU, the unknown team last year, all the way to the final four was because he has embraced this. He's focused on creating a culture where players want to stay in the long term and bringing the right people in. And he's one of the ways that he's doing that is that he's not fighting the NLI money. He's not just handing that off to some assistant or somebody else there. Hey, guys, take care of that. He's actively showing his players that he cares about what's important to them, which is making some money instead of going to the NBA. And so he had a bunch of players that deferred going to the NBA and have stayed to play next season for him. That's significant, right? But he's had he's embraced that instead of fighting like so many other coaches that are just so angry and they're going to their coaching conferences and they're all complaining about the entitlement and all these kids getting paid and how it's going to ruin their game, ruin the game. You know, him and so and I think many other coaches out there are starting to embrace this as an opportunity to show players that you care and that you're invested in them. I think this flexibility in thinking can be applied to lots of different contexts in our coaching, including systems and strategies. I think of a story this season. We have a really dynamic freshman guard that played for us last year, started for us throughout the season. And I mean, she's one of the fiercest competitors, motor that just won't quit, plays 32 minutes up and down, never gets tired. I mean, she's she's like a coach's dream out there. So many things that we can do with her on the floor. But remember early in the season, we we are not a pressing team, okay? We're fairly conservative defensively. And my philosophy, JP, is I just want to make it hard for you to score. That That's where we start from. So we have a timeout. This is maybe second or third game of the year. And Courtney comes over to me and she says, Coach, do you care if I press? Like she wants to do a full court press by herself. But this is who she is, right? So I'm like, well, Court, you can do whatever you want in the backcourt. Just make sure that when the ball comes across, you're able to do your job in the half-court defense. Remember, what's most important to me is we make it hard for you to score. So she goes out there all by herself, gets like five steals and six deflections in a one-on-two, one-on-three full-court press. And we start thinking, we need to give her a little bit more support out there because we've really got something here. And, and I'm, I am not a believer in full-court press, and I can give you lots of reasons for that. We just don't have a lot of time to work on it. But we had to start thinking a little bit differently about what our defense might look like to take advantage of what she could do. A different player than I've ever had in 20 years of coaching. And so we changed some things. And rather than restrict her when she would get beat, we just rebuilt the defense behind her so she could continue to do what she was best at, which was baiting passes and pressuring the basketball. And we just covered up for her a little bit for her to be able to take advantage of her strengths. Five years ago, 10 years ago, I don't know if I'd have done that. I probably would have said, Court, you got to make sure that you can get back. Don't be so aggressive. Stop screwing around in the backcourt here. You're not giving us anything. And put it on her 
rather than starting to think differently about what we're trying to accomplish and how we can better support essentially something that makes our defense much better. Yeah, and I think just so many of the examples that we've been talking about, they're requiring a couple things of us. They're requiring us to let go of some things that we oftentimes hold on to. You know, for years I was a man-to-man defense guy and finally I broke and went with my player's suggestion and played played zone and, and found ways to embrace some man principles within that. And we 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 did phenomenal. So what are we willing to let go of and what risks are you willing to take? That was a risk there. It's a risk for Steven Spielberg to make a shark movie without much of a shark. You know, like these are all letting go of stuff and taking risks. I remember for years, I was so frustrated with my team during warmups. We never warmed up with intensity. In fact, it was embarrassing how lackadaisical. And all those years, I designed the warmup the way that I thought it should be. The drill, I put the drills in that I thought, and there was intention and there was thought, and there was really good rationale behind why we should do the warm-up that way. And I felt right about that, right? Like, I'm, I, these, this is the right way to warm up. Except my players didn't warm up hard, right? And, and we'd always start the game and we'd always start down. And just for years, we were just plagued by poor starts. So finally, I sat down with the t- team one year and said, all right, what do you guys want to do in the warm-up? And honestly, one of those things was two-line layups, which if you know anything about basketball, it's the worst drill. It's, you, know, it, you could do it with a bunch of three-year-olds. Like It takes absolutely no skill and it is, it is not an effective warm-up. But it was important to them, right? And I think it's kind of a showy thing. Like the kids just oftentimes will just kind of, it's all about, you know, one-on-one making themselves look good. How high can I jump? Can I get over the rim? That type of stuff. And honestly, I, I had to pretty much blindfold myself every time my team did it. But we created a deal, right? They had a few things that they were going to do within the warm-up, And we were going to do five drills that they understood the purpose of them. And we we're going to do them like one minute each. And my thing was, hey, you get those five things done. You do them in high intensity. And then we can move into whatever you guys want to do. And they built out the rest of it there. Now, if we don't go to high intensity, it's going to eat into your time to do the things that you guys you know, really feel passionate about. And I'll tell you what, we went from being the worst warm-up team ever to being like teams were intimidated by our intensity within the warm-up. And this comes down to, right, like here I'm giving up some, like I hate this drill, but I'm allowing them to do it, right? Because that's where they're at. And I'm meeting them where they're at. And I'm not sacrificing my principles. We're still doing some of the important things. And the end of the day, I'm successful. We actually have the effective warm-up that I finally want us to have. I think at the end of the day, JP, if I was going to encourage coaches to do a couple of things, number one, it would be spend as much time learning about your team, learning about your players, learning about the context of your program as you do studying things that you'd like to add to your program or your playbook or your warm-ups or your practices. When I look back over my career at things that haven't worked or things that have failed, I think it's more often because I tried to apply something that didn't fit our context. It wasn't the strategy. It wasn't the system. It was just the fact that I didn't understand necessarily the landscape of where I was at and I applied the wrong strategy to whatever the thing was that we were trying to solve. I think the more that I understand my players, what they can and can't do, what their motivations are, what their pressures are on their schedule and their time and everything else, the better decisions I can make as a coach. The second thing I would recommend to coaches is really understand what you're trying to accomplish. 
We've given lots of examples of that. I could give you one more quickly. As I've moved from job to job, we've always had a tradition of dressing up on game days. My last job, we ran into some resistance to that. That was different. Players don't have dress up clothes. They don't get it. So it made me think, what are we really trying to accomplish here with this tradition of dressing up when we go to school? And the answer was, I want my players to be unified. In other words, whatever they're doing, I want them to all be doing the same thing. Wearing team shirts, wearing travel gear, dressing up, whatever it is, we all want to be doing that thing. And I want to communicate to people that see them at school that today's a different day. We're dressed differently because we have a game today. We have that conversation with our captains. They can figure out how to accomplish those goals. But I had to really become crystal clear about what was the purpose of this longstanding tradition of dressing up. And as I've thought about that, and I've applied that to all kinds of other circumstances in our program, it's taken me some time to really dig down and understand why do we do the things that we do? And that would lead us to the third recommendation here, JP, is that we have to be more flexible now as coaches than ever before, because the landscape, I don't care what level you're at of coaching is changing rapidly, whether it's player empowerment, parent involvement, you talked about NIL at the college level. That's coming to the high school level where we like it or not. Things are a-changing. And we have to be willing to say, one, I'm going to invest in understanding this new context. Two, I'm going to invest in understanding what I really want and why. And three, I've got to be willing then to be flexible and do different things to accomplish the same goals. And I think, JP, that's really hard. But if you ask me what truly defines a growth mindset, I think those three key principles are worth investing in as much as anything else a coach can do. All right, that's it for today's episode of the Coaching Culture Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Also, we're grateful for people who take 15 to 30 seconds just to leave us a review. And I know your friends appreciate it when you send them an episode that they find valuable. So don't hesitate to share today's episode. 